0: Of our longing soul, there is no one like you. And yet, Lord, we confess that we struggle so much in this world to believe that so often. We ask for your help, Lord, that our souls would wait on you and on you alone. And we would not trust or seek anything in and of this world that would be a joy apart from you. Help our hearts even now. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. Amen. While well, we sing... May all my days bring glory to your name. What a prayer. What a plea. I want everything that I do to bring glory to God. What is the biggest thing that's standing in the way of that prayer being answered? It would be us taking glory for ourselves. And we looked at this last week in Daniel chapter 4 of what happens... When somebody exalts themselves above God, trying to take his place, trying to say, I've done these things. We looked at Nebuchadnezzar and how he says uh, the the slogan of pride. I did this by my power and for my glory. By and for the slogan of pride. And as we wrapped up Daniel chapter 4, one of my favorite moments in the whole week is Sunday afternoon, right after the sermon has kind of landed on us all, right as God's word has been spoken over us and settled in our hearts and in our consciences. And we have that conviction, what the Puritans would say, a quickening of our spirit. And I love those conversations that we get to have. Let's not rush away from those. Let's linger in those moments. I know we have to set up and tear down, but let's linger in those moments. Because God's doing something after his word has landed on our hearts. And last week, as the topic of pride just landed on our souls, I had so many conversations with you, and we got to dialogue about our own struggle with pride, our own desire for humility, and how that affects every facet of our lives. And in going through that, I had conversations with you and just started thinking through, would it be appropriate, would it be wise to take a little bit of a detour. We ended chapter 4 last week in Daniel. We ended Daniel 4. It was great. We're able to kind of put a a book end on that chapter. And before we go into Daniel chapter 5, which is a whole separate issue, a whole separate story, I thought it would be appropriate and wise to, to settle into this topic of pride and humility. The reason why, not only because of last week and how affected we seem to be based off of God's word and how it landed in our souls, but also the reality of looking ahead into the future as a church. What's the greatest threat and danger to our church family? If I were to ask you, what's the greatest threat and the greatest danger to us as a church? There's a lot of answers that can be given, but the biblical answer is our pride causing divisions, causing sin, causing offense. Our pride is the soul's greatest enemy. It isolates us from the grace of God and it isolates us from the God of grace. It's the greatest danger that ultimately faces the church universal. Jonathan Edwards said that the premature end to the Great Awakening in America was due to, quote, undiscerned spiritual pride, which was the single greatest cause of the miscarriage of revival in the Americas. Pride undermines unity. Pride causes divisions. It grows factions. It fosters bitterness. It keeps us from serving and ministering to one another the way that God commands Pride brings down leaders. Proverbs 13 and Proverbs chapter 16 says it goes before destruction. One pastor says it this way pride ruins pastors and churches more than any other thing. It is more insidious in the church than radon in the home. We can so easily busy ourselves with ministry and service, and yet our hearts begin to creep into that slogan of I'm doing this by my power and I'm doing this for my glory, for my fame. If we live that out as a church, living by our strength, by our power, and for our glory, our church will fall apart. We will grow so bitter towards each other, so disunified. And I'm not speaking, thinking that that is happening right now. I'm not seeing that happening in our uh, church right now. There's nothing I'm addressing. This will never be a bully pulpit. There's nothing that I would come up here and speak that I would be afraid to speak to you one-on-one about. That's not what this is. This is after looking at Daniel chapter 4 and seeing the danger of pride and realizing we need to safeguard ourselves against that. If we're going to live out what we just sang, may all my days bring glory to your name, we need to live with humility before the King of Kings. If I could ask the Lord to do anything in our church, it would be that we would glorify Him as we live in community by being wonderfully unimpressed by ourselves. I I want us to be wonderfully unimpressed by ourselves. I want us to be radically impressed by Jesus and completely unimpressed by ourselves. There needs to be an emphasis on humility in church leadership, as our brother Ricky prayed for this morning. There needs to be an emphasis on holy hatred for pride that creeps up in every facet of our church family. And so, my question this morning that I want to tackle over the next two Sundays, we're going to do a little bit of a detour from Daniel chapter 5. We're going to get back into that later, but I want to detour just a little bit for the next two Sundays. And I want to ask the question. How can we grow a holy hatred for pride? How can we destroy it in our hearts? How can we cultivate humility? And why is it imperative that we do that? And to answer that question, we are going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 gives us a gracious warning and a precious promise of how to Fight pride and cultivate humility. Let's read together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Peter writes, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, overseen not under compulsion, but willingly. According to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, strengthen, confirm, and ground you. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask that that would be what would take place in our church family. That number one, all of our days would bring glory to your name. To you and you alone belong the glory, the might, the power, the majesty, the honor, the exaltation. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We want to decrease. We want you to increase. But we stand in the way of that happening. Our sinful pride stands in the way. So, Father, we ask that you would bring about, number two, what Peter says in this text, that we would clothe ourselves with humility, that we would be completely dependent upon you as needy beggars coming to you and realizing we have nothing in ourselves to commend ourselves to you or to one another. God, we so desperately desire that this church would be unified To the core of who we are, to our very DNA. And that's only possible by the power of the Spirit and the unity that He provides. We want to preserve that unity as we destroy pride in our hearts. So give us a sober spirit this morning. Give us an ability to see inside our own hearts, to question motives. Help us to put the blinders on, not to think of anyone next to us or around us, but to think of ourselves before you and your holiness this morning. And may you, by your amazing grace, reveal to us not only what you think of pride and how you deal with it, but what you think of humility and how we can cultivate it. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things from your law. Teach us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 1 Peter is a book written by Peter, uh, written from Rome around 64, 65 AD. Peter's writing to churches that were scattered throughout the area that we would now call Turkey. Persecution had begun to accelerate across the Roman Empire because of Nero's accusation of the Christians burning Rome. So Peter's writing to dear brothers and sisters scattered in that region who are beginning to experience hostility. And the whole theme of this letter, even as you saw towards the end of it, uh, at the end of chapter 5 of what we read, is how to stand firm in the midst of suffering. Its purpose was and still is to teach believers, to teach Christians how to stand firm in the midst of persecution, suffering, and hostility. And in chapter 5, Peter discusses the relationships that are found in the context of the local church that's striving to live out holiness in the midst of hostility. Verses 1 through 4 deal with the elders and how the elders are to treat the church members And verses 5 through 11 transitions from the elders and from the leaders of the church to the members of the church with that little connecting word, likewise. Verse 5, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And then this transitions to speaking to the whole church. Peter's now speaking to the entire church. And as he does so, he gives a main proposition in these verses that's clearly seen, that's clearly identifiable. And it's in verse 5. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 and he's using Peter's using that quote and framing it with three imperatives that are standing around it. You can see the three imperatives and how they hinge on that proposition. So you can see verse 5, you younger men, likewise be subject there's imperative number 1, be subject to your elders. And then all of you, uh, imperative number two, clothe yourselves with humility. So there's two imperatives. And they're grounded in because or for God is opposed to the proud. So do these two imperatives because of this main proposition. And then verse six starts with, therefore. Because, verse five is true, because of this imperative being true or this proposition being true, now, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So we have three imperatives. Be subject clothe yourselves humble yourselves that all hinge on that verse in third in verse 5 that proposition god being opposed to the proud but giving grace to the humble so what i want to do this morning is look at just that hinge and then we'll look at those three imperatives lord willing next week and as we look at that quotation from proverbs 3 verse 34 i want us to ask three questions this morning and Lord willing, we will answer them biblically as we go through this text. Three questions. Question number one, what is pride? How can we define it? What is pride? Question number two, why is pride so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous? Why is it so deadly? And question number three, how does God deal with prideful people? You can answer all of these based off of our sermon last week in Daniel chapter four, looking at Nebuchadnezzar. But I want to drill down deeper into into this issue. So let's take these three questions one at a time. Number one, what is pride? What is pride? Well, the Greek word for pride or for proud means to shine above others or to show oneself above others, meaning you're looking down on others. You are elevated above others. The main idea behind the word, the Greek word for pride, is how we look at other people. The picture of the word is that we are looking down on everyone else. So it's uh, another way we could define it is pride is seeing yourself as the standard against which everyone else should be measured. That's the way that pride expresses itself with human relationships. But pride also has an aspect of our relationship with God. Toward God, in relation to God, pride dem- demonstrates itself in self-sufficiency and independence. We don't want to rely on God. We don't want to say we need him. And so our pride shows itself in self-dependence. I can worry about things on my own. I don't need God to help me. Pride is when sinful creatures aspire to the status and position of God, refusing to acknowledge their dependence on him. Listen to this quote by Charles Bridges. This is a staggering quote. Listen to how he defines pride. Pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for supremacy with him. How unseemly, moreover, is this sin, a creature so utterly dependent, so fearfully guilty, yet proud in their heart. A proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God. A proud person attempts to rob God of the glory he alone is worthy to receive. Pride has many forms, but only one end, self glorification. So pride with other people is to see oneself above them, to shine down on them, to look down on them. And towards God, it is seeing yourself as self-sufficient, autonomous. I don't need God. The history of pride as a sin precedes even Adam and Eve. You know that, right? Satan's fall. The very first sin that ever existed was Satan. Isaiah chapter 14 tells us this. Trying to take God's place. Placing himself above God and saying, give me glory, don't give it to God. But pride isn't just the first sin that ever existed. It is the essence. Pride is the essence of all sin. Because ultimately, sin is saying, God, I know what you said, but I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to go my way, which ultimately always has pride woven inside of that decision because you're saying, I think you might get this wrong, God, and I think I've got this one right. It's present in every human heart. John Calvin says it this way, there is no man who does not cherish within himself, some idea of his own excellence. But the fact that we all struggle with pride, I think, makes us all become comfortable with it. In the words of Jerry Bridges in that very helpful book, Respectable Sins, Pride has become a respectable sin. We know we all struggle with it. We're all dealing with it. It's something that we all have a problem with, and we're all trying to get a handle on, and so it's one of those respectable sins. We can all kind of coddle it and work with it, and we know that we all struggle with it, but we shouldn't tolerate it. Jonathan Edwards says, Pride is the worst viper in the human heart. It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin." It's the foundation of every sin that we commit. It's the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lust whatsoever. It is ready to mix with everything. And nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous consequence. And there is no one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions than pride. C.S. Lewis says, pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats the very possibility of love and even common sense itself. Why is pride a spiritual cancer? Why is it so dangerous? That's our second question. So we've defined what pride looks like towards one another. We've defined what pride looks like towards God. Second question, why is it so dangerous? Why is pride so deadly, so dangerous? I want to give you a couple reasons why I think pride is so dangerous. Number one, pride is so self-deceiving. This is one of the reasons why pride is so dangerous, because we're so self-deceived of how prideful we are. We are usually much more perceptive of pride in other people than we are in ourselves. When it comes to evaluating ourselves, we we typically cheat. We typically have this subtle uh, cheating device in ourselves where we say, we're not really that prideful. We all have a more inflated view of ourselves than we should. And if you doubt that, if you doubt that we all have a more inflated view of ourselves, we all estimate ourselves way better than we actually are. If you doubt that, let me just test it really quickly, okay? American Idol. (laughs) Now, hear me out. You guys ever seen this show? Sometimes they have really good singers and they make it and they get a record deal. And then there are these people that go on, and they stand in front of the judges, and the judges say, what do you want? And they say, I want to be the next American Idol. My family tells me I'm good. My friends tell me I'm good. And then they open their mouth, and they sing. I don't think we could call it singing, what they do. Sounds more like a whale dying. And you hear them, and you realize they think that what's coming out of their mouth is angelic and beautiful are self-deceived this is what pride looks like this is what happens and I think American Idol is compelling evidence that the human race has a knack for self-deception and wishful thinking in our own abilities we think that we're way better than we actually are another test let's imagine that I gave a quiz just have a piece of paper I give it out to everybody everybody grabs a piece of paper And I want you to rate yourself in the following areas as either above average in our church or below average in our church. So I'm going to give this test to everybody. We're all going to have a piece of paper. And I want you to say, are you either above average in these areas or below average in these areas, comparing yourself to everyone else? So are you above average in honesty, work, work ethics, basic intelligence, and your morality? So we give this quiz out, we all say above or below, I get them back, and I tally them up. How much do you want to bet that when I get those tallies, we have more people that are judging themselves as above average than we do below average, right? It's going to show that we all estimate ourselves better than we actually are. And so we're going to say, you know what, I am above average in that department, I'm above average in that department. We compare ourselves to others, we judge others, we shine down on others. And then when we see those quizzes and we see those test scores, we realize, wait a second, if we're going to split this 50-50, right, average is in the middle, we have to have half above, half below, and more than half are above, thinking that they're better than they actually are. We don't believe that we really are that bad. We don't want to give ourselves that criticism. And so pride is dangerous because, number one, it's so self-deceiving. It's so self-deceiving. Number two, what, what I just did in that example, pride is so dangerous because it causes comparisons. Pride is so dangerous because it causes comparisons. We know that we shouldn't look down on others around us. We see that as ultimately a small sin, though. We know we shouldn't be doing it, but since it's a respectable sin, all of us do it. And we don't really see it as that big of a deal. But it is horrendous. It destroys unity when we start comparing ourselves to other people around us. Just think about how we do this in evangelicalism. We can look at other Christians... And we look down on them because of their theology or because of their practice. It would be a great question to ask your own heart. Are there people, are there believers, are there Christians around the world in other denominations or in other places in evangelicalism that you look down on? You have a knee-jerk reaction when you hear their names brought up because you look down on them since they don't measure up to your standard. If that's the case in our hearts, which I think it is, it can be. That's an early sign that we're headed down that path of arrogance to say, I'm better than so-and-so. You have those moments. Let's be honest. Luke chapter 18, Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. We have those moments where we look and we say, God, thank you that I'm not like them. or, Or if I were living their life, it would be much better. We do that which is so, so prideful. I don't know what tempts you to feel superior. You all are incredibly gifted, so there's a lot of gifts that you can uh, be tempted to feel superior in and about. But we all have lists. I don't know who you are tempted to look down on, but we all have those lists of things and people that we, we look down on because we're better. We don't understand how dangerous that is, how foolish that is. It's foolish to compare because we don't always know the full story of what's going on. We can't see what's going on in their heart, so when we make comparisons, we're comparing with not even the full scope of the story. Number two, it's always incredibly biased when we compare ourselves with other people. We're we're always giving ourselves an advantage in that. We don't look down on people with uh, an equal measurement, an equal uh, playing field. It's so dangerous. It's dangerous to compare yourself to somebody else, especially when we talk about in the church. We can use the Bible. Sometimes we turn it into this divisive prop where we show off how much we know. We show off our uh, accumulated Bible knowledge and wisdom. And it's so dangerous. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1 says that Bible knowledge puffing up is just deadly to the soul. When we use the Bible as a divisive prop, every doctrinal disagreement becomes some flashpoint And we use the Bible in opposition against brothers and sisters to show off our superior knowledge. There are definitely true heresies that need to be addressed in the church, amen and amen, and we need to do that. But there are also differences between heresy and between matters of difference in biblical interpretation that do not have any bearing on the gospel. And if you bring those into the same category as a heresy, then every doctrinal disagreement that you have with somebody is going to be a heretical issue. And you're going to see yourself as the only person that has it all right. Sometimes we turn the Bible into a springboard in comparisons where instead of going to the explicit teachings in the Bible and living those out and applying those out, we go to those places of the white space in Scripture and we try to argue about things that we can't fully know. We try to argue about what's going to be the mark of the beast or what was the species of fish that Jonah was swallowed by. And we argue about these things. We don't know. And we're never going to know until those things actually happen and we get before the Lord and we see those. So let's not argue about that and turn the Bible into a prop that we use to fight and divide. Let's glory in the wisdom God has given us, not because we're smart, but because of His gracious gifting. Sometimes we turn the Bible into a set of binoculars. We just see everyone else's problems because of what we know about the scriptures. Oh, if they would study the Bible the way I study the Bible, they wouldn't struggle with this problem. It becomes, you see how it compare, we start to compare, and it becomes so divisive. That's why Jesus says we need to take the log out of our own eye before we go and take the speck out of somebody else's eye. We have a log. We need to go thinking, knowing, believing, and living out the reality that our sin is way bigger and way worse than the sin that we're going to confront. One pastor says it this way, pride just makes you a predator, not a person. It's subtle, it's deadly. That's why we need to be so on guard. Number one, pride is dangerous because it's so self-deceptive. Number two, pride is dangerous and deadly because uh, it brings about comparison, which brings division. Number three, another reason why pride is so dangerous, why it's so deadly, is because pride takes so many different forms. It takes so many different forms. It looks different in so many different people. We can take pride in our accomplishments the way King Nebuchadnezzar did in Daniel chapter 4. Look at what I've done by my power for my glory. We can take pride in our position. This is Matthew 23 where Jesus says that there are people at the table that exalt themselves and elevate themselves. Look at my position at the table. I'm better than you are. We can take pride in our spiritual activities, Matthew chapter 6. Pride can infect our tithing, our giving of offerings, our prayers. Matthew 23, verse 5, the Pharisees would do all of their righteous deeds to be seen by men. We can take pride in our giftings, Romans chapter 12, verse 3. That's why Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You have been given a gift, use it to serve, don't elevate yourself because of your gifting." We can take pride in our knowledge. I already said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, using the knowledge that we have to just puff ourselves up. Richard Baxter, in an excellent book called The Reformed Pastor, talks about how we can struggle with pride. And in total Puritan fashion, he just lists out one after another, after another, after another. I want to read the list that he gives of how we could tend to struggle with pride. And I want you, instead of thinking about other people, and oh yeah, they do that, I want you to think about yourself. Where do I struggle with pride? This is why pride is so deadly and dangerous, because it can take so many different forms. So where do you struggle with pride? He says this, pride shows itself and it manifests itself in excessively talking about ourselves or our accomplishments. Comparing our gifts, talents, jobs, education, and even our ministries against those of others. Expecting that people will serve us because of the position that we hold. Acting like the resident authority on every topic. Being easily offended when things don't go your way. Seeing yourself as superior to others and your views more practical than theirs. Seeing your experiences as being more valuable than others. Being critical of the sins of others while you tolerate your own. Impatience by the slow progress of others around you. Expecting everyone to agree with your position on doctrine and theology. Resisting and refusing all criticism. Catering to people of wealth and prominence. Forcing our own agenda in the church. Envying the gifts and opportunities and reputations of others. He goes on, but if you see yourself at any point in that list... You need to go back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. What have we been given that was not a gift? What do we have that we didn't receive? If there's anything that you can take glory in for yourself or take pride in for yourself, the only way that you have that thing is because it was given to you by God and God alone. If pride It isn't if pride exists in your hearts. It's where pride exists in our heart. Where does it manifest itself? What pride does in our hearts and in our community is it elevates our views as better than others. We look down on others. You begin to create a gap between you and others. In matters of conscience, you are always going to say that you're thinking through it correctly. Their view is incorrect, my view is right. You give no room then for potentially being wrong. You have no teachable spirit to be shown where you could grow. You have no grace for matters of conscience to differ in one person to another. What about for you? Do you have strong opinions about things and think that things would be better if they just went your way? Are you easily offended? Are you bitter or struggling to forgive someone? Do you feel the need to confront others a lot the very first time that you see something that's a little off? Do you ask forgiveness regularly? And when I say regularly, I mean like yesterday. Did you ask forgiveness of somebody yesterday? It should be a daily occurrence. Do you wish people did things the way that you did them? Do you struggle with anxiety and worry and find yourself often crippled by fear? Do you have an issue with a brother or a sister but you just don't want to talk to them about it? All of these are expressions and manifestations of pride. We are all prideful people. It's a deadly disease that permeates every single one of our hearts. So why? Is pride so dangerous? It's dangerous because it's so self-deceiving. It's dangerous because it causes comparisons and divisions. And it's dangerous because it takes so many different forms. It manifests itself in so many different ways. That leads to our third question. So we asked, number one, what is pride? Number two, why is it so dangerous? Finally, number three, how does God deal with prideful people? What does God do as he sees prideful people? And you can answer that according to Daniel 4, he turned Nebuchadnezzar into an insane man. You are acting beastly, I will turn you into a beast. How does God deal with prideful people? Well, Peter answers it. Verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. That word opposed in the Greek is a military word. It means to take up arms against an opponent. It's vividly describing God taking up arms, military arms, against prideful people. And it's in the present tense, so it's a continual action. Meaning, if you are being prideful, God has taken up his weapons and is continually launching his artillery against your prideful heart. That's what he does with prideful people. There seems to be no sin that God hates more than pride. If you just study in the Bible the word pride and how it's used, it just seems like God hates this sin more than other sins. Let me show you just one. Go to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. You know this passage, most likely. This is the seven things that God hates, the quote-unquote seven deadly sins. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which Yahweh hates, seven which are an abomination to him. And here are the seven. Number one, haughty eyes or prideful eyes or looking at people with pride in your heart. Number two, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Number four, a heart that devises wicked thoughts. Number five, feet that hasten to run to evil. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. And number seven, one who spreads strife among brothers. You remember Hebrew has the... The chiastic structure where in Hebrew thought, if you're going to list out seven things, it's going to kind of form a little V. You can put one and seven opposites in connection, two and six opposites in connection, three and five opposite and connected, and then four right in the middle. So what's the fourth one? What's the, the middle sin that's the foundation of everything here? It's a heart devising wickedness, right? The heart. That's the issue here. That's the middle one. That's number four. And you can see number two and number six, a lying tongue, a false witness who breathes out lies. So those go together, right? Those are connected. But look at number one and number seven, the first on the list and the last on the list. Haughty eyes are a prideful outlook on other people. I have it right, they have it wrong. What does that produce? What's number seven? One who spreads strife among the brethren. Pride and strife go hand in hand. Therefore, if we can kill pride, we can grow in unity. What what a joy that would be. I mean, we are already one of the most unified churches that I've ever been a part of, that I've ever seen. We are so loving, kind, close-knit, unified. We care deeply about each other. We have deep affections for one another. We love each other, and there is such unity in our church. But wherever pride exists, it begins to pull that unity away. It begins to create division, create strife. And so any opportunity that we have, if if we think that the unity that we have as a church, which we are blessed by the Lord with the unity that we have at this church, if we think that that will just continue to exist without us working to make that happen, we're going to be on an escalator, not moving and being directed and going down. We have to fight against the tide of pride and strife growing in our church. God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13. You can just write it down. Proverbs chapter 8 verse 13. God says, "I hate pride and arrogance. I hate pride and arrogance." Can I can I ask you what is it that you hate? I am so guilty of using that word way too flippantly. Right? I say that word a lot. I can be very hyperbolic and I can be very passionate and exaggerate things and say, I hate such and such, like, you know, NFC Championship last year, I hate the Rams, God bless you all, I hate the Rams. (laughs) I I can throw those words around and and we trivialize it. I know I'm not the only one, we trivialize that. When we do that, we begin to realize that what God thinks about pride, when he says, I hate it, we start to trivialize his feeling towards it. God hates pride. Scripture never trivializes God's holy hatred of pride. Never trivializes it. And I, I can promise you that regardless of whatever you hate, and not even the trivial, silly things that we know that we don't actually hate, whatever you really hate, deeply hate, and should be hating, right? The the sin that we see in ourselves. I promise you that you and I hate nothing the way that God hates pride. God hates pride. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12, the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and everyone who is lifted up so that he may be abased. This is actually part of what it means to be God, to humble people that exalt themselves. If you remember Job chapter 40, God is saying, can you be like me, Job? Can you do the things I do? Can you know the things I know? Can you act the way I act? Do you know how this bird is made? Do you know when the tide comes in? Do you know how to make the stars? Do you know all these things? And then God says, do you know how to look through the whole earth, find the prideful people, and bring them low? That's what it means to be God. As Thomas Watson explained, the proud man is the mark which God shoots at, and he never misses his mark. Just think through biblical examples. We saw Nebuchadnezzar last week. Think about King Uzziah. You remember 2 Chronicles chapter 26. This is also seen in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, he reigned for 52 years. We know how he died. He died with leprosy. He died with a a deadly disease. But we also know why he died that way. He was struck with leprosy because he exalted himself. He started his uh, reign very humble and very good and following the Lord and, and then he became so puffed up looking at all of his accomplishments that he went into the tabernacle or into the temple. He goes in and he says I want to offer a sacrifice. I want to burn incense. And the priests say you're not allowed to do that. You're an amazing king but you're not allowed to do that. God has said you're not allowed to and he goes yes I am. And he takes the, uh, the, the incense and he goes to the altar and As he does to stretch out his hand, he's struck down with leprosy. King Uzziah dies because of his pride. King Asa in the Old Testament. King Asa is an amazing story. Again, godly, godly beginning. Following the Lord, doing massive reforms, even so much so that he takes his own mother out of her seat in the office and says, you cannot be a part of what's happening in this kingdom because you're promoting idolatry. But then at the end of his life, after he's accomplished so much and he's done amazing things by throwing himself at the mercy of God, at the end of his life, he has a foot disease and he says, I'm not going to ask God for help. He goes to the doctors, the doctors don't know what to do, and he dies. Miriam rebels against Moses and gets leprosy. David counts his army and gets a great plague of 70,000 people in his army dying, or in his, in his country dying. The disciples argue During the very week that Jesus is about to be murdered on a cross, they argue about who's the best, who's the greatest. Peter swears his loyalty to Jesus and then denies him a few hours later. Paul tells us that God specifically gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep him humble. It looks like, if you read Paul's letters, that pride was Paul's biggest sin, the one that he struggled the most with. If we ignore pride in our own lives and allow it to remain undisturbed, the reality of what God's going to do, we've declared war against God if we do that. What will God do with prideful people? If we do not humble ourselves, we have declared war against God. And he will take up arms and fight against us. D.L. Moody says it this way, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves. Charles Spurgeon says, if we think that we can do anything by ourselves, all we will get from God is the opportunity to try. Just try it out. If you think you can do it on your own, God will say, try that. But the story doesn't end there. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. God is opposed to the proud. And it would seem... That might be a very mean thing of God to do. We talked about this last week with Daniel chapter 4, how kind of God to humiliate Nebuchadnezzar, to get him to a place where he understood God's exalted, not me, and he repents and he turns and now he's in heaven because of that. If you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar, do you think that God treated you a little bit too harshly when you were on the earth and you had pride in your heart? I mean, come on, that's a sin that all the struggle with. Do you think that God just a little bit too judgmental, a little bit too harsh in his punishment? Nebuchadnezzar would stand here today and say, oh no, I am so grateful that God humiliated me in this life while I still had breath so that I could turn to him, trust him, repent, humiliate uh, in, in humiliation, humble myself before the Lord and let him exalt me in due time. If it hadn't been for God acting, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't be saved. So, God in his grace says, I will be opposed to you so that I can wake you up so that you can see your own pride. But Peter doesn't end with just the reality that God's going to take up arms against us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives undeserved, unmerited favor to those who say, I can't merit it. I can't deserve it, right? It's not like humility is a qualification, like, look, I'm being humble, give me grace. It's going before the Lord saying, I have nothing to give you. That's humility. This is Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I am bankrupt in my soul. I've got nothing. You're turning out the insides of your pockets in your soul to say, I've got no money to offer. I've got no goodness to offer. It's dependence. It's sorrow. It's repentance. We could say it this way. Blessed are the desperate because they get the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who say, I've got nothing. Those are the ones that God is gracious towards. A.W. Pink says, God, uh, grace is the favor of God to those who not only have no positive deservings of their own, but also who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. Augustine says, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. And Martin Luther says, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. That's why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. That is so important for us to hear this morning. God will not make anything out of us who think that we are something. That's why I say, go back to the beginning, I hope that we are wonderfully unimpressed by ourselves. We've got nothing to offer. Anything good in me, it's all of God. Anything bad in me, that's all of me. I've got nothing to offer. And so if you're ever encouraged or edified by one another, you just point to the Lord and say, praise the Lord for that, because that's not of me, that's of God. Humility is essential. And what we'll do next week, uh, Lord willing, is we will dive into how to cultivate humility. We have seen what pride is biblically. We've seen why it's so dangerous to our souls. And we've seen how God responds to it. He hates it and he fights against prideful people. Next week, we will look at how to cultivate humility. That's what we want. But before we end, if you get to the end of our time here this morning and there is no hope given as to where's the first step? Just give me one step. I would say this, and we sang it already this morning. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. You and I have done nothing Martin Luther would say, the only thing that we offer in the gospel and at the cross is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all that we have to offer. So, if you want to begin cultivating humility in your own, your own heart this morning, we're going to talk very practically next Lord's Day. But this morning, just generally speaking, run to the cross. Run to the cross. John Stott says, far from offering us flattery, the cross undermines our self-righteousness. And we can stand before it only with a bowed head and a broken spirit. D.A. Carson says, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands next to the cross? John Stott says again, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin that I am bearing. It's your curse that I am suffering. It's your debt that I am paying. It's your death that I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. So my prayer for us as a church family is that we would always go to Calvary. That's why we sing so many songs about the cross. That's why we always go back to the cross, every sermon, to remind us we are on equal plain ground. We are on level ground at the foot of the cross. And it's all bloody at that ground at the foot of the cross because of our sin. Nobody here needed more blood from Jesus because they're more sinful than others. God in his grace has unified us together as a family not because of anything that we've done, but all because of his amazing grace. So as John Owen says, fill your affections with the cross of Christ and there will be no room for sin. Glory in the cross, glory in how Jesus has loved you, not because of your performance with him. He didn't love us while we were doing amazing and says, hey, I want you on my team. What does Romans tell us? He loved us while we were his enemies, while we were yet sinners. Ephesians says he loved us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had nothing we could do to offer any goodness of our own. And he loves us. So then we can't turn around to other people. Knowing that we've been loved that way, we can't turn around to other people and say... Yeah, but I need you to perform so that I can love you. Because I'm better than you. I'm I'm shining down above you. I'm I'm in a better category with better gifts, with better knowledge. And so you need to perform, and then I'll love you. No, no, no. How how dare we do that when we've been forgiven by Jesus Christ at the cross? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, and we'll end here. There is only one thing that I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate His cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else can do that. When I see that I'm a sinner that nothing but the Son of God on the cross can save me, I'm humbled to the dust. Nothing but the cross can give us this spirit of humility. So let's run to the cross together. Let's run to the cross right now as we sing. Let's run to the cross as we speak with one another. Let's own our sin. We have been forgiven by the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of the universe. We've been forgiven by him through Jesus Christ. So let's walk humbly to others knowing our debt has been paid in full We're not going to hold anybody's debt against them knowing that he has forgiven us so much. And let's run time and time again over and over and over again. Let's run back to the cross. Let's stay there. Let's never leave. And let our attitudes be informed by the grace of Jesus Christ and his amazing love for us at that cross. Father, we thank you so much for the cross that levels us as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it humbles us to the dust. It humiliates us. What you did to Nebuchadnezzar, our, our Heavenly Father, you did, that, you did that penalty, that punishment to your son so that we wouldn't have to go through that. So that as we look at Jesus and we look at him being penalized and him being punished for our sin... It would wake us up. It would stir our affections. It would level us. God, I pray that this morning, pride would just be sucked out of this room. That we would even go. That your spirit would prompt us to go wherever there may be some aspect of pride in our hearts towards one another that may have caused division, may have been self-deceiving, may have been uh, in that comparison game of saying, I'm better than you. God, may we go now. Humble us. Unify us. I pray that you would even begin repairing marriages at this very moment. That we'd walk away from here and even in the car ride home, that humility would be lived out, that we'd plead with one another for forgiveness, knowing I have been so prideful and that's led to our division. May we serve the way Christ has served us, and He has served us by giving His life. God, we are nothing. Help us to know that, to realize that, and to live accordingly. May we serve one another today the way that Christ has served us. We pray in his name. Amen.